Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future, this episode of the podcast is supported by Studio 11 Music, your friendly and professional music studio. If you need help with production, writing, recording, mixing or mastering on your music, Mark can definitely help. With over 200 million streams on Spotify alone, tracks that have gone through Studio 11 are making waves and getting plays. They work with big names in the industry and young and aspiring producers alike. Check out studio-11-music.com today for more information. Plus, you can use the code FELIX upon booking online to receive a 10% discount or just mention Felix if you contact Mark via any channels to get the discount. You can find more episodes of this podcast, including chats with James Hype, Ben Hemsley, Ridney, Vanilla Ace, Tim from the Utah Saints, and many, so many more. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, and on Mixcloud. Simply search Felix Leiter in the house. In this episode, I talked to Gorp about his early musical influences, a lad's holiday to Ibiza that changed everything, and how the Gorp name came about. His stories are mighty. He cracks me up with chat about trips to Taiwan, who DJ Lollipop is, and why he's appreciated his time during lockdown. Trust me when I say this is one of my favourite episodes ever. So, let's get into it. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are. Gorp, welcome to the show. Uh, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for um, having me. Before we begin uh, the, the sort of the, the normal podcast agenda, it is always feels at the minute like I have to ask you how lockdown's gone for you. I mean, you know, we'll get into what, what you're doing, but you were a very busy man touring beforehand. Your music was doing really well. How have you coped or how have you found lockdown, not being on the road, not gigging? Have you been more productive, less productive? What, what, how's it been going, man? It's, um, yeah, it's been a big shift. Um, before, before all this happened, it was right before, just before I got to, I had a, a two two week uh, US tour and then it was Miami music week. So um, a lot got canceled. I, I flew to San Francisco, I got there and then I was there like less than two days. I started a collab with, um, with worthy when I was out there uh, just because I didn't, I thought while I'm here, I may as well make most of it. And then, and then the yeah, airline started sh- stopping. So I came on. So um, yeah, so it's, that was a, that was a bit of a, a kick in the nuts, but to be honest, it's uh it's been really good. It's been good for like um, a lot of things, you know, for my health, for my sleep patterns, for business, for work, you know, and uh, also just um, taking a breather and and everything. Because um, I'm sure, like most artists, we're, we're all in this hamster wheel, looking ahead all the time, and it's like, you know, instead of uh, just absolutely focusing on the long game, it's, it's been quite good to have a breather and uh, a sort of recharge. So, yeah, I've definitely. I funny you mentioned a couple of those things. That I've even this morning. I remember look. I looked at my 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 watch and it was like I don't know eleven o'clock or something. Eleven oh eight. I was out doing exercise. I'd already recorded another podcast with someone else. I'd already. Do you know what I mean? It was like and normally I'd yeah. be like. Sometimes I'm not, normally I'm like eleven o'clock. I have to get up time. Like I've yeah, lost. Yeah. I've I've lost weight. I've done more exercise. I've drunk a fuckload less alcohol. Um, and I've said on this podcast before as well. Weirdly had like loads less like I call it gig envy like normally like I'm looking at I'm sat like scrolling through Instagram and so and so's in LA or so and so's in IB for or so and so's yeah. in like and I'm just going oh, I wish I was doing that gig 
And like, I found the last few months weirdly like <laughs> relaxing, like in not being caught up. I guess like you said, being caught up in the whole industry mindset of like, when's my next record coming out? Is my next record any good? When's my next yeah. gig? Who am I booking for my next show? So yeah. it's, as much as I miss it all and I make that super clear, it's interesting that you said I've definitely found a little bit of clarity and a bit more headspace. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, it was, um, it's very much like, um, I was, I, I love it. Don't get me wrong. And I, I do miss it. But the, the thing is that you forget about like getting to, you know, getting to San Francisco was like, it's like, you know, getting up at four in the morning, like two days before to then go to London to then fly to, you know, fly to America, then fly from one side to other and, and then get there climatized then play the gig it's like so that's nearly three days that's, and then you know the the gig and the day after that's four days so whereas now you, you've just explained how much you can get done in four days when you're not actually you know and you're not actually just you know uh, looking at clocks all the time uh, looking in a coffee at stations and stuff so yeah but, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see what what comes out of i mean i guess i mean even i've still even not heard of the sort of you know, the summer bangers, you know what I mean? Like the kind of like, even on the two sides of the music, really, like even on the more commercial side of music, I haven't yeah. heard those big summer bangers, like, you know, the Calvins or the Dizzies or whatever, who would be releasing a big summer, like, you know, the big summer track. And then on yeah. the underground side of stuff, you know, my promos really dried up. Beatport seems to have been a bit sparse. Obviously, like those big, or anyone really, never mind you're big or not, those underground artists, there's not, a, and I'll get your opinion on this too, but there somehow feels not a great need to release a club banger when there's no clubs open. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I kind of agree, but I think a lot of it's to do with the infrastructure and teams around the, uh, especially if they're artists, touring artists, you know, majority of the money comes from the um, touring uh, or from the, the events and, or even putting on brand events and that's where the money comes from. So to have those people that are the, their assistants or the team around them, They've obviously been like furloughed, or you know, they're they're at home working, and everything's kind of like, uh, and no one knew knows how long it's going on for. If if we all knew it was only going to be like a year, we'd be like, right, let's shift this and do this to that. But because you know, there's a lot of like changes. There's been a lot of shifting, and I think that does affect. Um, it does affect music as well because, like, I I don't know if you're going to get onto it later, but I find that like the last twenty tracks I've made, I've not even played them out yet. And it's like, yeah, I'm like, so I'm, I'm making music for clubs, you know, in the studio, which is, you know, really good setup. But I'm just like, sometimes I'll play something or I'll play someone else's track and think, oh, that inspires me because it's, it sounds pants in my studio, but we're on a big system just with a real simple kick drum and a, a, an underlying bass that's so simple. Sounds boring in here, but in a club, it really like pushes and pulls the subs. That's like, you know, that's another thing. And it's so it's, it's hand in hand, you know, and it's like, I know a lot of artists have, I've said, oh, how's your music coming on? And they've said, oh, I've gone off and made breakbeat or made working on an album. I'm not making club stuff or, you know, the house stuff as much anymore, which is quite interesting, really. So, yeah, I, I think, yeah, you I mean, you raised quite a few interesting points there. And I always, I have that with, well, my music and other people's music, but I think you're always more critical of your own. And the amount of times I have like, come out of the studio next day or something and I've listened to it and I've been like, ah, it's all right. And then like I play it in a club and the lights are flashing and people are dancing and it's whomping yeah. on the beat. And suddenly you're like, oh, that's, that's okay. That's a bit better. And then, then you might see someone else play it or a video of someone else. And you're like, oh, that's a really good track. <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. No, so, yeah. It, it takes, 
Yeah, I've had a few tracks like that where I've just not believed in them at all. And then uh, one, especially like on the Dirty Bird level, the Kool Aid one, I was like, I don't know, man. I'd, it's all right. It's a bit. I, I made it for um, Sonic Academy video, and I was like, I made it really simple so that I could remake it and explain why I made it. So I made it in the most simplest way I could, and I thought it was a bit like you know a bit a bit easy. So. And then I listened to it, I was like, nah. And then, yeah, that one got chosen, that got put out, and everyone was raving about it. And I was like, I played it out, I was like, oh, yeah, it sounds really good, this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, oh. yeah, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is all right, this one. I wonder if, uh, I wonder if Angelo made Nas for uh, a Sonic Academy video. <laughs> yeah, well. Because yeah. he pulled all that out of her, didn't he pull all that? I mean, I'm not knocking it, it was a great track. I'm not getting into knocking anyone. I, I like Angelo, or I did. But like, that track at the time, did he not pull it all straight out? Vengeance. of the... Yeah, he it pulled it all out of a vengeance. <laughs> the bass line and everything. Yeah, I, I was showing someone, like, I was showing someone the other day a bass line, and I, I ended up just playing it in roughly and, and quick. And it, it was best bass line I've ever played. I was like, oh, that that's just like, yeah, so it's law, isn't it? I'm just showing someone, just played it, and it threw it out there. But yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, going back to the, uh, the yeah, the initial question. But yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. It's, um, it's been, it's been, there's been positive effects and negative, but I think, I think in the world, not just in the music industry, I think the world, it's been really good. I've got friends that run like big companies and they've said one thing they've taken away from this is, that instead of working five days a week, they're now going to try and make it four and add like an hour on each day. And then that cuts down the Fridays. Uh, and then the staff can, uh, you know, enjoy another day with the families and then they'll they'll probably work harder and they'll have to commute that extra like two and a half hours, three hours on a, a Friday they don't have to do and everything else. So there's a lot of positives that have come from this sort of stuff. And and also retail, I speak to every, I try and speak to everyone about it and see how they've been affected. And some shops, you know, that they've been, the the walk-up's been terrible but online they're just smashing it and they've never been online before you know and it it helps family businesses and stuff you know whereas there's there's other people that are affected so but for me it's um i'm so used to um i've been self-employed all my life so i'm so used to it being up and down you know like i'll have a string of gigs for like six months and i'll have nothing for another six months and i'll be you know having to then go back in studio or i'll do something else in the meantime to try and keep it going so i'm i'm kind of used to like ups and downs so you get used to it it's just like it's just a uh, you just got to adapt and uh you just take the positives i guess i'm sure like you said just uh do what you can yeah man I'm, yeah we're well, definitely used to the peaks and troughs in the self-employed music industry <laughs> let's get we'll, so we'll, we'll we'll pull it back and we'll, we'll go all the way back um way before djing before producing before um even before probably you're old enough to be buying your own music i want to take you right back to really really early influences in music so who was playing music in the house or the car where were you those first really really early memories what were you hearing who was playing it like, what was it um well i'd have to say my uh, my dad was one of the biggest influential on my on music because he was a huge music lover he, he, you know he always he, he still is but he's slowed down a lot now he's in his 70s and that but when he was younger he used to you know he used to play all I used to play everything from like reggae, uh, rock. I used to like all Def Leppard, Iron Maiden, and that stuff. Even you know, chilled out stuff, um, world music, Marchiba, you know that kind of the world stuff, Kitaro, and all. Because we went travelling when I was really young uh, in a in a motorhome, so I did a lot of that. So I listened to all sorts, but it massively got me into electronic because he used to tape all the essential mixes every week. So I used to tape them all and write the DJ's names on the spines of the cassettes. 
and then he'd have like racks of these uh, TDK or Bass for Sony or whatever they were tapes, um, these chrome ones and that, and then and he had dual tape decks and stuff, and he used to uh, you know share them to his mates. And so I, I was listening to like sort of uh, John Kelly, Cal Cox, you know all that Pete Tong stuff real early on, and uh, you know even there was a lot before that. Tony DeVete, you know Tony DeVete was one of my idols um, when I first started. DJing but but yeah back then it was that that kind of thing so I'm I'm from all sorts of music you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm sort of uh I listen to anything really your dad's so, still got those collection of tapes they'd be yeah like, yeah yeah he's still he? got them That's yeah but amazing. I don't think, I don't think they're all in the right ones though because he used to tape <laughs> over them and like and you know I'd, I'd get it and it'd be like it'd say like I don't know millennium Carl Cox special <laughs> essential mix and I'd put it in and it'd be like it'd put like um uh, Santana over at top of it because he did some on Jules Holland or something, you know. And I was like, man, that tape's not that anymore, you know. So that was the world in which we live, man. Do you know what I mean? Back in those analog yeah. taping over tape days and stuff. Um, so yeah. So then going going forward from that, can you remember like the first bit of music that was like physically? I mean, we're probably not a, a million miles away age wise. I mean, can you remember the first bit of music that was like physically yours? Like someone gave you it or you bought it with your own pocket money. And like, do you remember that first thing? Was it an LP? Was it a tape? Like, was it a CD? Like what was the first bit that was just your music? Yeah. Um, well, the first tape I had was, um, it was a Julia Fordham tape. I don't even know where I got it from. Um, and I, I just, I don't even know why I, it was because it was the first thing I listened to it and it was like, it was slow, like love song stuff. And, uh, I just, just cause I had it, I used to like walk around with it in my Sony Walkman and that, but, um, vinyl, vinyl wise, I went, I was that, I was only young. I think I was like, I think I was about 15 and I went to town on my own with, with some money. I didn't have any decks and I went into a record shop. It's scary going into record shops when you're 15. Cause they're always intimidating guys just stood there, just like listening to like hard house or whatever. And I was like, and I went in and I just picked up two records and bought them. And the guy went, don't you want to listen to them? And they're all looking at me. And I was like, no, I just want to buy them. And uh, he went, do you know what they are? I went, yeah, yeah, I do. I know what they are. And he went, are you sure? I went, yeah, yeah. And he went, you can listen. You don't, you, don't, you, know, you don't have to buy it. I was like, no, I just bought them. And I went home and it took me, I, I went around the car boot sales to get um, to look for some decks. And I could only find them what? ones with a radio on front you know radio tape it was all in one music center so i bought one of them for like two quid and then um, i needed some speakers i bought two of those and then i bought a headphone uh, a microphone controller from a uh, realistic tandy one and i used to like blend the two and uh, they didn't have pitch on or anything and the two records i bought that i had was uh, one was a junior boys on track it was rubbish i don't even know what it was and then uh, but the other one was uh, Daft Punk around the world because I bought it because it had a world on it. So, yeah, they were my first records I bought. Um, CDs-wise, CDs wise was uh, Meatloaf, Bow a Hell album. <laughs> that one. And uh, I think I got something like, um, uh, it was something like 90s Mega Dance or something. Or one of them, uh, that's not the not the now ones, but it was like one of them dance extremes or something with... Uh, Loads of like Euro dance on from nineties. So I, I have to say that that like story about 
going into the record shop is fucking genius. Like, because it'd have been the sort of old moody cunts that we are now that you'd have been walking into, yeah. and then yeah. and you'd have been like petrified, not knowing. Like, you know, when you just because we're of an age now, there's very few things we don't know the procedure of. Do you know what I mean? But you mm. forget, like when you were younger, you just didn't know how shit worked. You didn't know were you allowed to play the record, even if you'd been allowed to play, you wouldn't have known how to do it. Like, yeah. you just forget. Yeah. Like, because it's yeah. even going back, and we'll come on to this in a bit. But like, you know, again, where you go on tour, I go and do gigs. We know how nightclubs work now. We know how like the etiquette of certain things work but when you're yeah. a kid you just don't know where you're supposed to stand who you're supposed yeah. to speak to what drink you're supposed to order how you're supposed yeah. to like communicate with like djs yeah. and promoters and you just forget that like you don't i love that story about going in and they're like do you want to listen to it and you're like no no <laughs> <laughs> i was like i just wanted to get out of there and like just say that i had some records so i had uh i had this i must have told this on this story on the podcast before but like I went to like New York as part of an art trip when I was about um, 19 and um, I'd read like, because I was a geeky stuff about this and I'd read that like dance tracks was the place to go. Like that was the record shop to go to. Right. And um, on the way in on the bus, they were giving you all these kind of like, do this, don't do this, blah, blah, blah. And then part of it was like, whatever you do, don't go to Spanish Harlem. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, right, cool. And all I had on this bit of paper that I'd copied out of the back of like Mix Mag or something was the address of dance tracks because it was all obviously before the fucking internet and Apple Maps. Yeah. And I just got in a, got hailed a New York taxi this day, like yellow taxi, just went, can you take me there? The taxi driver was like, you sure? To this like, you know what I mean? This young white kid. And uh, he yeah. took me to it. And I, I didn't really look around. He literally pulled up outside dance tracks, went straight in. You know, just like a couple of massive black guys playing the counter, and I was like, "I'm into funk. I'm into like vocal US house." And they were like, "Right, well, you're in the right place." Gave me a massive stack of records. Like I was listening through because it wasn't my. F- I knew the kind of crack of you know knew that, but I was still pretty intimidated by the whole thing. And then like halfway through this stack of records, I really needed a piss. And like I said to the guy, I was like, oh, "Excuse me, do you have a toilet?" And he was like, "No, man, but there's a McDonald's up the block or something." Yeah. That journey to the McDonald's and the going to the toilet in that McDonald's was one of the scariest fucking things I've ever done <laughs> in my yeah, life. And it was like, you know those old Armand Van Helden videos when they're all stood on street corners with puffer jackets and like bad... Yeah. <laughs> Except I wasn't watching it from the comfort and safety of my own home in Northern England. I was fucking yeah, living yeah. it. Um, and then I had to... And then, cut a long story short, I bought a load of these records and then I had to pay a massive fucking... Well, it felt massive at the time. I had to pay a massive like fee at the airport because obviously it weighed my suitcase over the right yeah yeah (laughs) so yeah i love that story about the record shops man so when yeah go i was going to say the records were it was really interesting because like when you were a kid i mean i used to get like i used to get 20 quid for bus fares and and dinner money as well at school and i was like and by by my mum gave me 20 quid at beginning of week and by tuesday i'd eaten it all you know what i mean but (laughs) After a while, I was walking home, especially in summer, and saving the two quids here and there. And then, um, yeah, I remember going with, like, I used to get trained to York from Scarborough, and, and we had, I'd have, like, maybe 20 quid. And it was like, you could buy these, like, promos in um, an HMV in, in York, and it was like, they were eight eight ninety nine or, and you could get two. Or you could go to, like, Woolworths and that and buy, like, the, the chart, like, commercial trance ones for, like, Three ninety nine or three for a tenner. So it was that it was that thing of like, do I buy like two promos or do I buy like like three of the 
and yeah, that, those decisions were really hard, and it was yeah, it was funny. It was so so much fun back then, you know. Good old yeah, days. I've, I've met yeah, like I, I do try not to look back with rose tinted glasses because I'm, I'm I'm for always looking at the you know the positives and try and try to reach to new things. But it's been mentioned so many times on this podcast about just that community of a, of a record shop, like going in on a Saturday, meeting you with a DJ, seeing the flyers, the excitement of a, a records coming in, the fucking envy that you weren't getting the shit from under the counter that other DJs yeah. were, and like building up that rapport with the guys behind the counter. Like, yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely something that's, um, it is one of those things that ultimately I do miss, and it's a shame it doesn't exist yeah. in the way that it, it, it did. Yeah. One massive thing I found was, um, like, we had, we had one in Scarborough, um, called Criminal Records, which was... They, everywhere, you know, most places got the same sort of stuff. It was just didn't, they didn't get the huge amount. But one thing I found is as I got older, um, not many people probably thought about this, but I found less and less stuff I could find to play because I felt I found, like, the people making the vinyl or still printing the vinyl were still very stuck back. They were back in the house. They were back... In, they, weren't, they weren't taking massive risks, you know, because they had to play it safe because it was an expensive sort of... Um, you know, press. Whereas, like out on the digital side, the CD side, when the Pioneer 500s were around, and and you could make stuff on like EJ or um, Music 2000 and all that kind of stuff, and then even on the Amigas, like doing all that stuff, you could take risks and it didn't cost you money. So I was getting a lot of more edgier stuff with the with the early CDs and that than I was, you know, uh, with the vinyl stuff. You know, that's what that's, I found anyway. And then I, I, I bought a- less, bought, bought less and less, and I was buying more stuff I'd, I'd wanted for a lot of years, like, say, if they were, like, in the second-hand bit or things like that, you know, or especially the the import stuff, the Harry Choo Choo stuff or a lot of the house, that house stuff I used to dig for hours to try and get what I'd missed, you know? I think that's a... I've, no one's ever said that to me before. I think that's a phenomenally interesting point, and it's something that I've never considered before, really, which is that it's so much easier to take risks when you don't have to pre- physically press something to vinyl yeah. physically pay for that vinyl to be delivered or distributed and then physically wait to see if anyone actually buys it before it gets melted down or fucked off whereas because yeah. i i have you know i've pondered the sort of that thing about the crossover between how difficult it used to be to make music i.e what equipment and hardware you'd need to then opening up the, the how easy it is now to potentially produce and distribute it and the the crossover in there and whether it's good or bad or the positives and the negatives but no one's ever made that point to me before about it's, it's obvious now it's made like all great points but the fact that it's just it was the cost involved with taking that risk of yeah. printing something to vinyl whereas when you can burn it to cd or as we moved further on you could just download it or make it available digitally it's just so much easier so when we you're obviously you're obviously aware of djs because of these essential mixtapes you were you were buying a deck. You were buying records and f- formulating your own decks at an early age. When was the first time you kind of saw a DJ being a DJ for the first time? Was it like a gig or an underage? Yeah, demo? I was. Um, yeah, I went. I went to a beta in '98 when I was six. I just turned sixteen, and my mum went, "What do you want to do when you leave school? Because whatever you do, um, you you'll like." whatever you do you, you should do now because then when you start working everything you won't really have time so i said oh and i used to i used to tape my dad used to tape um it was good there was um we used to have two satellite dishes west and east and i don't know whether one was for porn and one was for normal stuff or whatever but my dad had two and he had a switcher on it and uh but what he did was <laughs> he he used to like um 
he used to like the like taping the the German um, music, like the Love Parade and and a lot of things like that. So he used to. Uh, there was a channel called Viva, I think, Viva Shvai or Viva Fear or whatever it is. And um, it was the, the Four Little Cubes. And I remember watching it and there was like Paul Van Dyke in his living room doing like a live stream, drinking a cup of tea. And I remember it like, and it's so crazy. You know, I've seen the videos and the, the sort of re regurgitating now. But And I used to watch DJ Torture, DJ Tonka, um, Bad Boy Bill, all things like that on these things. And uh, I was like, I want to do that. You know, I remember watching the French house stuff. There was a club and me me and my friend looking at it and it was all that filtered, you know, that filtered stuff. And now we were like, oh, this is amazing, man. We want that, like, we want to do that. And then so my mum said, oh, you know, I went, I want to go to Ibiza. And because there was Clockwork Orange, Manumission, all that crazy stuff going on. And I was like, so I got a letter off my mum and there was four of us and three lads were 15 and I was 16. And uh, yeah, we went back in 98. Moose T, uh, Horny was number one at the time, and uh, that and um, oh that that other uh, the the beat goes on and so that other Venga uh, Boys and stuff like I think it, no no it was a bit later that but it was that era and uh, yeah that's when it all started where I was like right as soon as I got back from Ibiza I was like sixteen or whatever I was like yeah definitely want to be a DJ you know and uh, so you, went, you, went, you went you went on a lads holiday to Ibiza when you were sixteen and the others were yeah. fifteen and, and yeah. were you getting into the clubs in Ibiza yeah uh, we. <laughs> Yeah, we got into them. Um, we uh, yeah, it was funny though because it was just it was just mad because it was just it, it was just bizarre because it was so different back then. It was pe it was pesetas, and then it was also we got we got mopeds and we were like at fifteen we got mopeds and uh, it was so relaxed compared to what it was now. I mean, we, we were you know we were just going down the West End with uh, we got laser pens and gold chains, you know, like <laughs> from from the guys at the the beach and stuff, and we're. You know, I was in a club with a laser pen thinking I was a, the boy and stuff, you know. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah, Sounds it was fucking amazing. Really, I'm, I really, I wish I could yeah. go and live that holiday. <laughs> it was, it, it was, it was, it was life changing. And also one of the big things I know about it was that they used to be able to flyer them legally, like uh, illegally. So flyers were everywhere. Flyers were just like part of it. You'd walk around on a night out and you'd just have a wad of different flyers and there'd be like free drinks or, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it was... Yeah, it was good, man. It was, uh, and that opened it up to me. I was like, right, you know, as soon as I got home, I was like, I, d I was like, well, I don't know if you want me to carry on my story, but yeah, definitely, man. Um, so you yeah, get yeah. basically you get back to Scarborough at sixteen, and what's the thought process? Yeah. So I was like, right, I want to be a DJ, and then so careers advice had said to me, oh, what do you want to do when you leave school? And I was like, I want to be a DJ, and they're like, there's no further education. You're gonna have to have some talks so you can get yourself enrolled into college. So I was like, right. Well, I want to make music. No, there's no further education because back in '98 there wasn't. There weren't music courses like like that. Um, there's only university ones, so they want a gap. So I said, "Oh, well, what can I do?" And they gave me this list, and they were like, "If if I signed up for something, they obviously the 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 gov the education got money. Whereas if I didn't sign up, they they'd lose out on money because I could tell it was their job to make sure every kid, you know, gets. And I was like, "Well, what am I going to do?" And uh, there was nothing on this list. And I said, well, I don't like any of this. I don't want to be like, you know, I don't want to do welding. I don't want to be a social worker. I don't want to do this, engineering. And then I saw hairdressing. And for for whatever reason, I thought, oh, that'd be funny. If I was a hairdresser, I thought, the good thing about that is you could you could be anywhere in the world and earn money because you just need a pair of scissors. Because I thought you just needed a pair of scissors and that's it. I was like, yeah, just, I went, can I do hairdressing? And she went, oh, well, um, yeah, but 
you're, you'll be the only guy out of 30 girls. I went, put me down. <laughs> so put me down for that, and I hated it. Um, I didn't think I'd, I'd follow through. I thought I'd, be, I'd get another chance to say, oh, actually, you know, can I change it to somewhere else? But I didn't. Massive pack came through my door and went, bang straight on my doorstep. And my dad was like, well, you've started it. You you know, you're going to finish it. So I, I did six years of hairdressing. Um, but yeah, uh, all like I just worked, um, worked like summer holidays, just, you know, working on Saturdays, sweeping floor, washing air, buying vinyl. That's all I did. It was like... Uh, were you DJing at this point then? So through these six years, were you gigging? Were you doing parties? No, you... I, yeah, I did. I did when, um, as I as I went on, what I noticed was I had to, um, I had to like adapt because I was trying to play like, I was trying to play like really hard, like sort of almost like everything from like uh, Uber Drug. Do you remember that? All the nuclear stuff, hard house. I was trying to play like the very German tech like real banging um trans stuff and then no one had let me play they'd let me play on a sunday afternoon at between one and two before the club opened you know and it, like these all day sets and then i realized that um someone said oh i dj i met this other guy who went i dj and i was like oh yeah dear i showed him my decks and i did some mixing it's like oh this is sick and he went yeah come and dj with me and when i went it was it was not that kind of dj and it was all like commercial really cheesy stuff it was like in a, a fun pub bar with a microphone you know taking requests all that stuff but then i realized that he was getting paid like 80 quid a night and i was like hang on a minute i'm getting paid 80 quid a week doing this hairdressing business like training so i started doing stuff with him and what we'd do is he'd he'd play like a couple of commercial tracks and then he'd go on the microphone and then i'd play like two or three i'd play like uh do you remember the track like wise guys basement jacks that sort of vibe where I could get away with it. And then I'd drop in like all that kind of uh, student anthem sort of stuff as well. And it, I realized you could mix a lot of it. So after a while, I got into it doing that. Um, and then, yeah, I, I remember the first gig I got was my school disco when I was just, it was about 16 and a half. And um, it was in um, Eastfield School. And it, it, they said, oh, we need a DJ. I said, I'll DJ. I, I didn't have, this is when I had like all the crappy stuff. Uh, the, the the like uh, music centers and I took them in and I remember wiring them up. I had about six speakers, but I didn't. They're all different. I was just twisting wires together, pushing them in back of these amplified music centers. But one of them didn't work on right. Other amp didn't work on left. I, and I I just got a mini disc player because I was like, yes, I've got mini disc so I can record stuff. And then I was doing this uh, this disco and it just won't save. The amps were overheating everything. <laughs> I had them. I had those four. There was four flashing like Parkan light things from Tandy, the ones where they go in a four thing, and I had that at the front. And then, yeah, and then at the end of it, someone had put because my name was DJ Ollie P, and someone had gone round with a marker pen and changed my name to Lollipop. And then that was it. I was just like, and so I couldn't find a poster in the youth club which didn't have Lollipop on it. So yeah, that was that was my first gig. Um, it was a little bit dodged though, as I said. There was if. If health and safety had come in, they'd uh, shut me down. I had like four extension leads into each other, you know, them kind of things. <laughs> so, we, so we, we doing. So you've sort of discovered that this 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 fun pub place you can get you can get you know decent money compared to what you were getting to hairdressing. So were you doing more and more DJing through this six years of hairdressing? Were you getting more and yeah. more gigs? Or yeah, I did. I did. I did loads. I've got like um, some people only think I've done the golf stuff, but I did. I went on to work for uh, uh, with another guy called Sai, and we. 
we used to, we were like Sionoli P for years and we worked for um, a company called uh, QBC. I don't yeah. know if you heard of them. Yeah, Richard and Bruce. So we used to do like um, all Icon Divas and the, um, before that we, d- we did everywhere. We, d- we did all around England sort of um, doing all like, it, we'd do the party rooms. I'd do like the jumping jacks. I'd do on stage with students. I did all that. We did that sort of stuff. We did, you know, um, uh, what were they called? Um, we did all the stuff for the vodka nationwide stuff on Wednesdays, Tuesdays, majestic. We did all the, you know, the mainstream clubs, um, did, we played, um, we played, we played all of them. And then after a while, we realized these super clubs were shutting down because like everything, like the smoking bands and late licensing all started changing and stuff. So we were doing that for years, but, and then that's when I quit because I was, I did. I used to be resident at Mr. Smith's in Warrington, uh, and we used to do every Saturday. But so driving from Scarborough to Warrington, after DJing for five hours and then working all day in the daytime and stuff, fell asleep at the wheel and smashed my car up. And then after that, I was like, "Well, I'm going to have to. I can't keep doing this." So, and then, I, and also, I've lost the love for it because I was just playing other people's music. So I was just playing anthem after anthem, getting on the microphone, making up birthday names just so the manager thought I was good on the mic and stuff like that. You know, like. Because they'd want loads of like stuff said uh, throughout the night and that kind of thing. So, and then I was just like, now nah, I'm done with it. So, then I started making my own music, and then yeah, that's when it all started changing again. So, back so, out. so talk us to um, the obviously I understand and can totally under, can totally empathise why you sort of you had enough, and obviously the the car crashes obviously plays a factor. What gave you the impetus to start? making music what did you what were the first bits of software that you started using so for anyone out there who's currently like you know procrastinating what was that what was the motivation at the time what how did you get into it what was the first stages and steps that you did right the um i i guess it was um kind of evolution of technology as well that excited me always has done um so the first thing i mentioned earlier it was like rave ej and music 2000 and those kind of things got me hooked early on and then um, around that time, you could get like Akai mixes, which had uh, um, the, the samplers have the sample sections in. And when they started incorporating those on mixes and you could sample for three seconds and stuff and have the loop in. And they were at, like, I'd seen them on videos and I started watching, um, you know, um, when the internet was, obviously that was booming um, back then. We had a, a 133 megahertz Pentium or something. It was really dinosaur, but we used to watch things on there we used to get the the magazines and stuff so the the technology side really excited me and always has done um so that that kind of like that's where i started i started to make like bootlegs or i started to make edits for when i was um a bit i guess i was still djing then so it was it was a technology which made it better because i could then um, use stuff like napster and limewire and get the tracks that no one could you couldn't get anymore you know anywhere else so i was getting like I'm sure, like most people, I got like a Run DMC. Um, the way it is that that way before that was like two years before anyone had sort of uh, it even hit anywhere. So having the internet really opened up another avenue of everything. So that kind of that was like um, the thing that made me start. And then realizing that you could put your own music up there or your own bootlegs or edits. And when you were putting them on these platforms, and you know. At the time, I was getting stuff like I was making my own mashups. Like you know, you'd have like Paul Van Dyke for an Angel, those kind of old mashups, but they were only on vinyl, so it wasn't possible to do it. So, but when you had CD burners and everything, it, you you know you could do that, um, and that's what got me into that. And then, then because 
the audio world is such such a deep and technical scientific side as well as fun you can kind of never stop learning and there's always something that's like you've not had or learned or done or used or so it's always like evolving so you're always like oh that's and it, that's what's kept me up to date with everything else really otherwise i'd probably give up on everything so music where, wise where did the squatters come into it then because that was probably that was probably the first time i guess in my little world that i became aware of of you like was that was this about the same sort of time yeah well i've it, no this was two the squatters was 2007 right uh yeah this was a bit after this is um uh, that's when I met Alex from Bridlington because he was Ali P and I was Oli P and someone <laughs> said, oh, they both, they both make tunes and uh, I think you'd get on really well and he introduced us and we, we got on really well. Like I I just bought all this equipment, like all these like things I didn't, I had these monitors and they were like they were like two foot deep, these CRT monitors and they were about 28 inches and they were huge and like, and I didn't have a clue. I just used to buy stuff. Whereas Alex went to, he went to university and did a music degree because that's when it came in then. And then, so he, we taught each other things. I was like, oh, look at this thing I've done. You know, I've put eight EQs on this channel strip and it sounds ace. And he's like, no, no, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> so he kind of like, but together we worked really well because I'd come up with these crazy ideas. Whereas he'd keep it quite like mathematical and quite, and he could play the keys. So we worked really well together on it. And, uh, yeah, we did that for for like eight years. We did the squats, but it was we were trying to be cool at first. We tried to make minimal tech house, really cool underground stuff. But again, it, it, it was like, and then we saw because um, I used to run events called sessions. I used to do them in Leeds, Scarborough, Whitby, Bridlington, and uh, I booked Mickey Slim at the time. And uh, Mickey came and he just played like wonky electro fidgety stuff, and and everyone just went nuts. And we were like, why are we trying to be like? cool minimal tech djs when that looks like so much fun and like yeah why don't we try doing that and we got you know and it was from that we went into doing the squatters and just being because massive influence for us were the crookers so it was like you know and bot's a good friend of mine now and it's uh yeah it's uh i i always say to him oh you know i used to like i used to watch like everything to do with those guys were amazing so they were a big influence stupid freshware Todd and Chris, um, there was loads, and and that kind of that that was a bit of a. It was more like a fad, you know. It was a fad, a very fad time, you know, with that style of music, a bit like dubstep, you know. Had like three years or whatever, that kind of, you know. It was very. We jumped on that, and we did, you know, we did well from that, and we 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 did a lot from it. But that was kind of like that was after the OLP stuff. Because so. that, yeah, it was definitely. I mean, I mean, picking up on a couple of things, I think in many ways, music has always been faddy and cyclical do you know what I mean and yeah. some people jump on things and you know even this morning I was talking to um uh, Sam Dungate and he was talking about he got DJ lessons off Darren Styles before they were Force and Styles and they wrote Pretty Green yeah. Eyes obviously now you know uh, Ultra Beat did Pretty Green Eyes and now everyone knows Camel Fat and it's like so it's like you know those cyclical cyclical faddy I mean fad makes it sound like but you know those periods of music like EDM whether it be EDM trap dubstep yeah. electro yeah. whatever but yeah i definitely became aware of you um you know because of geographically but musically i became aware of you through the squatters stuff um yeah and what um what then what was the transition between the squatters and gop where did, was that a quick thing was that a slow thing was there something in um, between that i'm missing out on like what what was the kind of no the the um the thing with the squatters is we did 
we didn't we didn't have a direction and uh, like we we just made music we loved but and then when it got to a point where it was a full-time job for two people it was like right we've got studio to pay for we've got bills to pay for you know now we've got to so and then you end up just going right what can we do and it's like oh lads i've got you this you know this festival set and it's great money this that the other but you have to play like commercial so it was like right so we turn up and it'd be very young or it'd be like a, a an under 18s or any and it ended up being to a point where the 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 business side was um it got to it got to a point where we had to do things for money rather than what we loved and that's a lot of it's because of the the style of music changed so we tried to change with it we you know we we made a lot of uh, big room stuff. We went in down that route. We did that sort of thing. But then I don't think that the brand image helped because we used to wear bright clothing, you know, we used to jump around and not take things serious. And that's, you know, the, 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 some of the best years of our lives. I mean, we got the name The Squatters because we, we didn't get paid enough money. So we used to stay at people's houses and we'd say, oh, before we get to our next gig, can we stay another night? And then someone said, oh, Squatters are here again. And that's how we got our name. Um but yeah, and it became very like we didn't do it for that. We we didn't like think like a business. We just did it for the love, and which you know you can do that for so long. But if you if anything changes, like your your business model or this music style, or you have to adapt and go with the times as well. And we didn't want to go down the route of like you know it's when Scream, Banger, and all that stuff was massive, and we were like, well, we could make like electro, but it was like and uh, yeah, and that was fading out. So we were like, yeah, well, we did some house stuff. We did. Well, it's just difficult when you when you rebranding or whatever. It's it's kind of you 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 fuse is burning out. You know what I mean? You need to actually like call it a day and then move on to the next thing or have a break. Having a break can help. You know, eight, eight years we did. So and we, we always say we haven't actually finished. We just haven't done anything for a while. So one day we will, we will do some more stuff together. But um, also Alex went on to have children as well. So it's not exactly the you know the best thing to sort of me sort of say. Come on next week we could be smashing it you know and it's a you know realistically it's like you know let's uh let's knuckle down he got a job at um at the university and the music and stuff like that so it's all that kind of thing so it was kind of you know and also it was it's difficult being in a duo it's a lot harder than people think like we a lot of our audience was out of um out of england at the time but the problem is two flights two visas it just never made it possible because we never we were still although the fidget and electro stuff was big it was still underground it wasn't pulling big crowds but the crowds it was like drum and bass or anything it's like well can't say that because that's massive now but um but yeah that kind of thing so it's just how you know like we were saying earlier the ups and downs and it's it's uh the the transition was i just kept making music but i struggled without alex because he you know he played the keyboard since he was 13 and he knows music and everything so i was like i just i couldn't do anything about from make twisted weird sounds with like by moving knobs and putting like you know effects on stuff and and then after a while I had to learn I had to learn that there's you know that, um, how to do things because I'd, I'd bought all the equipment I'd kitted the studio I'd built the studio I was like and it was like right I'm still gonna do it so carried on and that's how Gop started you know um, I made a track and uh, I played it to my friend and he just looked at me and he was like I mean who's gonna play that it's rubbish <laughs> and it, and it, who was and, that who was your friend. Uh, one of my mates and i'm not saying his name right but and then he uh, he he said to me that's just weird and he had his mouth open i went well you don't need to gawp at me and he went 
gawp at you. What's that? And I went, gawp. He went, what does that mean? I went, gawping. He went, I don't know what it means. So I told him. And then when he left, I'd saved the track. Instead of untitled, I'd saved it gawp. And that's what I, I called it. And then from that, I just thought, do you know what? I'm making music for myself. I don't care about anyone else. Um, yeah, and the, like the first early tracks are like Jarena and uh, Life's Too Short and all those. And if you listen to them, you can think they don't really fit in anywhere. But if you listen now, you go, oh, actually, they sound like those labels. And that, at the time, I was like, just experimenting, making non-predictable music, which is, you know, which is great. It's, it's pleasing sometimes. So. So, 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 and just, um, so obviously that's, I love that name story. So how long, you know, you said in some respects that there wasn't a, a business plan for the squatters, like, and ultimately that probably led to some of that success, but like, have you taken a different approach with Gorp? Like, is there more of a, a plan? Is there more of a business plan? I mean, it's obviously you're not in a duo, but has, has there been more of a, like a, you know, have you made more of a plan and, or is it still just being you making music and seeing what happens? Um, no, I'm still, I still make music and see what happens because I'm like, I, some, a lot of the time I struggle to find place for my music. I, labels are like, oh, it's not for us. It's not for us. And, you know, like, for example, I, I sent, um, one track to 20 labels and they all said no. And my management turned around and said, we suggest, you know, just sit on it, shelve it, or just, you know, release it as another name or something like that. And I was like, nah, man, I was like, I believe in this track because when I play it, it goes off. And um, so I sent it, um, I thought it had one sound in it. It had an FM sound in it that just goes dang like that. And I, I heard that sound after and I thought, and I was like, that sounds like Oliver Heldon's sound. So I thought, sod it, I'll try it, I'll send it to him. So I sent it to him and Oliver Heldon's was like, oh, I love it. Um, yeah, we, we want to sign it and we want him to do like a seven-day um, tour on my, my my America tour I want him to do Miami ADE and everything else all off this one record that I was going to just put in the trash and I was like I didn't really know much about Oliver Heldens' music I know his mainstream and everything else and a lot of managers or a lot of um, teams would have said is it a good brand is it a good look for you is that where you want to be and all this sort of stuff and I was like do you know what if someone believes in my music I'll go with them because it's like I've done this mistake before it's like oh, it's not this and, and it's not that. And you're bowing down to other people. So for me as Gorp, it's like, you know, I'm I'm making the decisions and, and they're coming from, you know, they're coming from the heart really. And it's, it's uh, I think that's important when you're doing it rather than some someone saying, oh, you know, guys, this could be a good look for you. It's not a good earner, but you could do this, this and this. And when you start doing that, you just end up going down, you just end up hating it. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of artists are out there who've had managers and, um, teams around them that have just sort of taken them off what they love doing and it's just then you know it doesn't resonate with the labels you need to make stuff like this this and this and then you go back in the studio going oh i'm going to make something like that i can do it but it's not really and then you make it and everyone was like oh that just sounds like you've ripped that off <laughs> no i think you so, make some no i think you make some extraordinary points there and they really resonate with me like that whole like i mean i've just i think i think heldon's played that um that track i think um didn't uh Idris play it the other day because he played my track with Ben Rennie, didn't yeah, Idris yeah. play it the yeah. other day? But it's yeah, but like one, yeah. I think the couple of things that you said to me which really resonated there are like firstly, like, yeah, the amount I don't think people would believe the amount of record labels that turn down late records that then go on to do all right or people like for example, yeah. I mean that good times thing that did with Ben Rainey that, that, that Idris played the other day. 
that came out. Everyone, everyone else turned that down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then now, but as soon as it comes out, all your mates and all of the DJs are like, "Oh, mate, this is this is sick." And you're like, "Well, funny because no one gave a fucking shit about it for six months before." Yeah. Um, but the, one of the things that you said that I really resonate with me is, and and I do it all the time, and I've literally just signed this track to to New State. Is like, no, I believe in this record. It's fucking good. Like, I'm not yeah. prepared to like just bin it or give it away or whatever. Um, yeah. And sometimes, like, it just takes a little bit of patience, like, to to you know to to, to find the right home for it, or yeah. some, you know, offer off t- things to change or people's. Like, but yeah, when you said that, I was like, I feel like that. I'm like, I really believe in this record, and I want to get people to fucking hear it because I know yeah. when I play it, it works. Yeah, I think it takes longer because, like, when we were the squatters, it we were looking for a faster track because we were like, we need to make it, we need to make money, we need to, you know, we need to grow fast and we were doing some amazing massive gigs we got we went went to taiwan once right went to all the way to taiwan to do this heineken festival like ten thousand people we got there just behind stage stage manager comes up and goes oh hello um welcome to taiwan and everything are you ready and we're like yeah the promoter comes over and goes oh we look forward to your hip-hop and i went you what he went you play hip-hop i went no he went oh i went why did you book us we play house and he went at the time we were making like big room house and uh it was like oh i, I went on website and you look like hip-hop dj so he booked us off our pictures and uh so that yeah, that shows everything about branding and image but yeah that was uh that was the yeah that was a, a, an interesting one but yeah it's um you know that and that's that's the sort of stuff you know we used to do they were great you know great life experiences but it was very very much like we were just sort of following um we were trying, almost like chasing something rather than just being true to ourselves. And with 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 Gop, how how has it been? You mentioned it. How has it been different touring alone? How has it been different creating music alone? How have you found it not having Alex there as a sort of a partner? Um, it's been it's been uh, you know it's been easier and harder at the same time. It's I think I'm. Like I always used to say that like Alex had the talent and I had the determination. So like I'd be like, you know, he'd be like, let's go to Morrison's and get a salad bar. I'm like, no, not until we've nailed the baseline. So and then we'd I'd be like, no, no, no. And he'd be like cracking the whip all the time. Whereas um, you know, because he found it natural. Um so from a lot of respects, it was like I don't know, it was it it was easier. Um it was easier because there was two of us and I could just I could clean the kitchen and make coffees while he, he made a track, you know? So it was a lot easier in that respect, um, writing music, but everything else, I don't know. It's like anything when you've got someone else there, um, you know, when you, when you DJ and someone else is there that you can go off for 10 minutes and come back or whatever. Not that you, we did, but that kind of thing is all, you've always got that backup or that person, or you can say, what do you think about this? Instead of, you know, making some stupid comment or you can, they'll, they'll keep you in line. So that, but it massively, um, put a restriction on where we could go, what we could do, because like we both both lived in separate towns, so he'd have to drive like 40, 50 minutes to get to mine, or I'd have to drive to his before we even went anywhere. And so, and then there was always like he might have had his his, his day job at the time, or I might have had you know different commitments and things like that. So it was always like it's difficult. It's like keeping a band together, you know. Um, that that was hard, but um, he went on to be my manager um, after that. Like yes, it, well, now he's uh, part of my management team and stuff. But um, but it's again, it, it's different because 
he chose the you know the path of having a family, settling down a little bit. So it was difficult for me dragging him out four in the morning on a Saturday night, you know, when he's he's got newborns and things like that. So it was like very you know very different sort of thing um, back then. And uh, yeah, so I don't I don't know. It's uh, it has its pluses. It's, I think I prefer working alone because the good thing about being alone is um, when you get somewhere and you're on your own, you get to a foreign country or someone will uh, you know someone will realize that like some guys on his own they're going to look after you and and it's very different if you want to stay there for an extra day or you don't want to you know that day you might not want to you might want to go and walk around the city you, you might not but when there's two of us it was um it was good but it's very trying to you know it's like trying to take your girlfriend with you everywhere and stuff it's uh you've got to consider other people whereas uh you know and and everyone's on a different path you know so and we did, we, we, you know, we still work together with our speech every well, day now. Well, We've gonna, never yeah, fallen out. Yeah, well, I was going to bring that up, really. For, for someone that um, hasn't, who's listening, who hasn't had management or thinks that they need management, how, and it's, it's a great link because of Alex, like, how has management helped you? Do you need management? What sort of advice would you give to anyone out there who's, who thinks they desperately need management or whatever? Like, what, you know, especially with yeah. that link to Alex as um, well. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, um, because I do, I'll probably mention some stuff in a bit about the other things I do, audio services wise. But um, a lot of people ask me, uh, they always sort of say, you know, they come to me and ask me for advice because of, they're quite new to the to the industry. And one thing I always say to them is let managers come to you. Don't you go to them? Because like there's been so many times I used to think, oh, I need a booking agent. Oh, I need a manager. And oh, I need this. I need that. And and I did, you know, I did the uh, the golf thing for three years without a manager or an agent or anything. And then eventually you'll know when you need a ma- When you can't manage yourself, that's when you need one. If you can do it all yourself, you know, if a manager comes to you and says, I look after these, da, 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 all these artists, I want, I want them to make you my new project and this is what we're going to do and this is a plan and this is what I need from you. That's different. But just, just to have, you know, have a management email, it's a... Uh, you can, you can kind of, uh, yeah. And there's a lot of people as well out there, which I'm, I know there's a lot of people in the industry that just take retainers. So they've got a manager, they pay him like 500 to a grand a month, and then I'm, and then the manager's going, oh yeah, we we still the, the tracks are good, but they're not getting on the labels. And I'm just like, and then they come to me and go, oh, I'm paying this guy for 12 months, like 12 grand, and I'm like, what for? I'm like, he's you're not at that level yet, so he's just taking your money off you, you know. And it's quite sad. There's a lot of people doing shit like that. So, um, but I, I don't think you know. I I honestly only think you need a manager when you've got managers fighting over you. You know, when you've got two people wanting you to, to represent you, or at that point, because otherwise you just end up. You know, you're just going to pay uh, um, pay for something that's. You know, it it might be different. Every manager's different. Every company's different. You know, some management companies have uh, might like be an arm to a record label, and they can help people out massively, but. Um, you know, my team are great guys. They're they're all um, they're all people I've known many years and stuff, and they all work with me because they're just like, Do you know what? They they could see the tra- trajectory. I can say that right. And and they were like, oh well, why not help someone who you know one of our friends over just. So that's how we um, that's how we got started. But no, I, I didn't go looking for it. Yeah, no, I think that's some some really sound advice. It's, I've given that. I, I remember how it felt. I remember like. Well, I don't even know now, 12 years ago, something like manage, man, messaging like um, Ben from Prop and Fitch being like, 
I need, I need a manager. And he's like, he's like, I, I don't think you do, mate. And I was like, no, because obviously, like, management's going to sort it all out. And he just said, ex- mate, he said exactly the same thing. He was like, when you need a manager, they'll come and find you. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. you know, and I don't pay, I don't pay, I certainly don't pay a retainer um, for my management. Yeah. Um, but hope he's not listening. But the last three, you know, the, I still get my tracks signed. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, yeah. I basically yeah, yeah. like the last all the tracks that I've had signed in the last six months have been me contact me getting all the people and then as soon as someone goes yeah we want to sign it that's when i loop my management in to say all the stuff to them that i don't want to say to them to make sure that yeah. they get the terms right and like i can still be that that nice like producer guy and my manager gets to go no we don't want that fucking share and we know we're not having that royalty and we don't, we're not doing that fucking option like that's yeah. how i explain it sometimes is and i manage some people now and like and i know sunny obviously like part of your team but like sometimes i say to people one of the reasons you need a management or a booking agent is to say the, the shitty things to promoters or labels that you don't want to say as an artist. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you get to you get to keep that that middle distance yeah. between. But it's like a, ma- a married man, and someone says, "Oh, do you want to? You know, do you want to come over on twentieth? They go, look, go, let me have a chat with wife, and I'll let you know. Like, <laughs> let me have a chat with manager." I'll, I'll blame someone else. Innit? Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, exactly it. You give, you get someone to blame. So yeah, what were you talk to me about like the audio services and other stuff that you do? Like, yeah, well, since lockdown, I've um, I've had more time. I've been like, right. I remember just being in studio, like, right. Now I've got every second of every day to do my own stuff. I was like, and then after like the first day, I was like, I don't really, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I was like, this is weird. I don't know where my gigs are. I'm like. I'm like a boxer training for a fight, not knowing if I'll ever have a fight. It's like, it's just weird, man. So I try, I thought to myself, I, I, I can't just not do anything. So I was like, right, well, I already had my studio. Um, my studio's built and, and everything and the, the whole business side of it's all built. So I was like, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably try and do that. Offer my services to people out there that, um, you know, that need... Um, need sort of help and what i did was in the end so since lockdown what i've done is i've done a sonic academy tutorial uh, i've done a loop master sample pack that's just come out i've done um i do uh, mentoring mixing and mastering um and like just offer services like um helping people you know guiding um a few people oh, not not many just more the zoom chats you know people book my time and they ask me about the tracks for feedback and everything like that so yeah, but that's all under mostwantedaudio.com. That's all my most wanted MWA. That's that's kind of like something I was going to fall back on, you know, as as the got gigs stopped and everything. But as it happened, it was all set up ready. So because I wanted it to, you know, I wanted it to build in the background. So um, that kind of um, that's what I've been doing. But a lot of you know uh, engineering bits of engineering for people helping them with tracks. Um, and but yeah, a lot of a lot of Zoom one to one stuff because. Um, People get so far and they get so frustrated with um, with things. It's um, it's nice to give back as well because because you sort of um, you, you learn things yourself with working with people and helping them. And then when I do get my own time now, I'm like I'm really productive. Whereas before I was sat there going trying to force out music and it wasn't like having like 180 hours a week isn't natural to, in the studio to not like you know expect it. So I'm and just also been, not uh, getting also not getting that. Like you mentioned before, like that that feedback and that energy of like going on tour, getting inspirations, going to gigs, yeah. getting feedback on records from the crowd, seeing the DJ that's on before you or after you, getting other inspirations. Like I think that's one of the things that I've felt a little bit in this period is like not having that 
ability to go and play a record out and see how it sounds and see how the response is, see yeah. how like how it does a sound guy turn and go, what's this? Or the guy that's on before you or after you or whoever's the promoter in the booth or, you know what I mean? It's like, I've found that that weird, I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, um, it's been odd, but I've, I've just knuckled down um, since and I've just, you know, I've put, reinvested every every penny that I sort of made back into hardware for the mastering and everything like that. I learned a lot. I've had time to actually learn. I've had time to spend, you know, weeks in my studio and listen to the, you know, everything and really fine tune my sound and stuff. So I'd, I'd like to think that my new tracks are going to sound better than the, they would have done. Because before it was very, it was very, I was away for four weeks. I was back for two weeks. I was away for four weeks. And when I got back, it was like, I'd like broken sort of time to do it. And it was always very forced and very like, right, let's throw something together. So I've got something new or let's get that remix finished for that deadline. And, and but whereas now I've had time to actually look back and go, right, you know, how can I improve my sound? What, where can I learn? And been reading so much as well, you know, and, and working with other people online and working with even, I've even been working with some engineers like Mark Maitland, James Hare, um, even Colin Barrett, people like, you know, obviously um, they're close to me because they're in the same building, some of them. Um, but all that kind of thing really helps because it gets you out that like mindset of like, and you can see how other people work, different techniques, different plugins. You might not have, you know, that can improve your workflow. So it's been great for me. This, you know, this, this has, I know it's quite a sad thing to say because a lot of people have been affected massively, but, um, but yeah, I've just tried to turn it around into a positive and, and uh, make the most of it. I think you, you make a really good point. One that I like have to, re- not have to remind myself of, but like, is that, a lot of the time like this 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 game is like it's a solo game but it's better if it's played as a team and like what i mean by that is like you know i'm like you in the sense of like i'm one man i'm one artist i you know ultimately i'm responsible for my gigs my records but i I have people that that help me and like but and the more that i can expand that whether it be a a collab with ben rainey or a collab with luke davidson the more i can use engineers like colin or mark the more i can like you know get someone who can play a vocalist who can write a top line or someone who can re-sing something the more i can even just chat to other people about records that i love what's inspiring you like so what i mean by that is like yeah it's me it's just me it's just felix or it's just gop or it's just whoever but the more that you can include more people in your process and journey the better i think that is for you at the end of the day yeah, yeah, because even even a, a, like for me, Zoom chats or FaceTime calls to like my friends in LA or anywhere, and you 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 don't realise because you just think oh it's a bit of a natter and a catch up, but you'll you'll hear something in that discussion that'll then make you then you'll say oh have you heard that you know they're, they're only giving so much percentage at this label for this and they're not doing that and then but you're always learning you're constantly thinking oh well. You put in something in your head going, that's a red flag. I don't want to release on that level because they've ripped someone off or this, that, the other, or, or the, the management's being talked about this. And, that. and you learn things constantly. And that I think it's important to not just isolate yourself away and lock it, you know, lock yourself. Uh, and that's why I did, you know, I did a IO Music Academy. I did a, a five-day course where two hours and there was 50 people on Zoom. And what I did was I just went, you know, spoke about music production from start to finish. Um, everything from you know answering answering questions and stuff and uh, and uh, yeah there was 50 people it was a bit weird because I felt like a fish in a fish tank it was just all these people on this screen and they're all like expecting me to just chat for two hours and uh, so I did I did that and that was great I got out of my comfort zone you know I learned a lot of things because people would say oh well why do you do that and what's that doing and can you and then after I'd be like I need to know because 
but yeah, no, why does it do that or whatever? And and you know, and and so I was always evolving as well, and it's important. I think that's that's a massive thing. I always say to like any of the students or whatever, you know, try and work with people around you, like you were saying, work with other people, collab with people, because someone will have found something out by accident. It might even just be a, a an extra settings menu or on a plugin that's a tiny little triangle in corner, and they've done it by accident. But then they'll will show you, and you'll go, oh, "I never even knew that was there." And then that opens a massive world of like something else, you know. And that's the same for gigs. It's the same for, you know, all kinds of stuff. And you bump into someone, you speak to someone and they're like, oh, I know about this residency or I know about this. I know this guy who's booking this show in this country and I'll hook you up with him and he's a good guy. And yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's because it can sometimes be a very, it can sometimes feel a lonely industry. You know, it can sometimes feel a lonely game, whether you're you're driving home at X o'clock in the morning after a gig, wherever, or whether you're on a flight or whether you're, you know, waking up on a Monday morning and there's no party anymore and you're suddenly on Mm -hmm. your own on a Monday morning. Like, so it's important for us all to, to reach out to other people, get, keep networking, keep chatting, keep like working with other people in the industry. Um, What's the plans for like, Obviously, you said before, no one, no one knows. You know, we're recording this in end of July, twenty twenty, and no one quite knows. But do you have a plan for coming out of? Are you withholding? Are you still sending stuff to labels? Are you withholding? Have you got stuff signed that you're trying to delay releases for? Are, are there any shows in the diary? Like, what is the kind of general overthought at the minute about the short to medium term? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one, but I've. I've sort of said to myself, I've just not even like, and I don't get my hopes up. Like, I don't think to myself, oh, you know, I'll be, I'll be out by September. I'll be back touring again or anything. All I've done is gone just appreciate this time while I've got it. Um, I think just keep write, r- writing records. That's all I can do. Like, I've just released that um, record with Ray on Tool Room. Um, that that was a bit of a different angle for me. So I did something that was out. You know, it's a summer piano house track, which. Is nothing like the golf stuff, but it, we met in the middle and it worked really well. So I did that, and then I wrote the um, the. I've got a track coming out on Dirty Bird on the seventh of August. Uh, my fourth, that's my fourth single with those guys. Um, that's with Bakosaurus called Raw. And then I've got like so I've still got stuff coming out. You know, it's like I'm 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 aiming for the bigger labels and keeping the you know the ones that are, have big impacts because what a lot of people that might be listening don't understand is. When you sign a track to a record label, there's a lot, there's a massive difference between signing it to your mate's friends and signing it to uh, a big player like Spinning or, uh, you know, Dirty Bird or any of those tool room because you've got full marketing and ad campaigns and everything around it. So you'll have, you know, Instagram takeovers, you'll have all that sort of stuff. So it's not like if you don't, so I know some people that release like three a week and they just smash it out and that works for them. But for me, I would rather release on the labels that are meaningful and make tracks that are very different. And, you know, like that's why my tracks are always, they don't, you know, I don't flood the market. I always have like maybe, uh, maybe 12 a year, uh, but I try and make sure that they have an impact. So people go, Oh, that record, or it's got identity. And um, so the record side, I've, I've got a lot, you know, I'm just, I'm just writing tracks, but I'm just writing and writing and then picking out the ones that, which are really going to sort of, um, I'd like to test them as well. If I could test them, it'd, it'd be a different ball game. But, um, but yeah, I'm just going to keep writing. And then the main thing for me is just, you know, I know my visa needs renewing for the states and everything, but it's so uncertain. You know, it's like I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if there's going to be the letting, you know, foreign internationals in. I don't know whether I'll get stuck there and all that. So I'm not in a rush. You know, um, 
all I've got to do is just concentrate on writing music, concentrate on uh, improving my health and myself and my knowledge and all that will then back up what I want to do for like next year onwards. So. Nice one, man. If people want to find out um, more about you and what you do, where can they find Gop on what's the, hit me with some links or what's the, what's the best place to, what are the best platforms? What do you, where do you want to send people? Right. So um, everything is at Gop Music for Gop. Um, all my audio services are mostwantedaudio.com. And uh, yeah, and most, most Sundays you'll find me wandering around Aldi, um, the frozen veg aisle. <laughs> right, well, okay, there's a couple of things that we do to wrap up the podcast. The first thing is, like, basically I'm going to ask you to curate a sort of a dream gig. Now, this is kind of like, it's in the moment, do you know what I mean? You're sat in your studio, yeah. we're in the middle of lockdown, so this could well be different if I'd asked you six months ago or two years' time, but right where we are yeah. now... I'm asking you to kind of create a dream gig. So it's going to happen like tonight, whatever, pretty soon. You know, yeah, let's, let's say tonight, this weekend. First off, I want a venue. So it can be a venue that you've played before. It can be a venue that you know and love. It can be a venue you've never played. It can be like a generic one. So it can be like a big festival or a small underground room. Yeah. But first off, I need a venue. And then secondly, I want I want three acts. There's not so much a warm-up, a middleman and a, and a, or a middle act and a, and, a, and a headliner. It's more just sort of, you know, we're going to call it three a three-build act. Yeah. You can play. You can go back to back. You can put live acts on, dead or alive. You can put bands on. Um, you can do what you want, but God, this is your dream gig. Where are we going to hold it? Where are we going to have it? Right. Well, my dream gig would have to be, I'd have to move the festival to a different location if that's possible. Of course. So, right. I would take uh, the Beat Herder Festival in Clitheroe and I would move it to West Coast America <laughs> just for a better climate. Um, yeah, that's what that's what I'd do. But I, I, would, I would hybrid it and I would make it into like, a huge water park because I'm a massive water park fan. So big slides. So like, I'd, and I'd have I'd have all the slides timed. So when when you got like right to the bottom, then the drop would hit um, on on the tracks and stuff like that. So there's massive build-ups, you know. Like as you're walking up the steps, there's a big like you know 64 rolls and that. And then when you get to yeah, and uh, yeah, so I do that. And artist-wise, that's um, that's that's an interesting one. What I would do as well is I would have it over like. Um, I would have it like a festival, so it would be a time thing, so that the music would change and it would go like 24 hours, but the music would change. Um, it's it's really it's really tough on the artist thing because I like like I find artists that I really love and I see them watching play and then I, I see them again like a year later and they go because they, they've gone so big they go really shit. Because um, you can also give me, you can also give me artists in a time frame. Do you know what I mean? So you can be like, oh, I want, I want so and so from this era. I want so and so from right. that era. Yeah, it's yeah. Totally like, it's totally fantasy, man. So you can curate whatever you want, however you want it, whatever time frame. Yeah. Um, right. So this is. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm on the spot with this one, man. This is. Uh, I guess. I guess I'd go. I'd like to go back and someone that prob- probably it probably picks someone like um probably pick someone like judge jules man like uh, jules is a, a friend of mine but i'd pick someone like that and i'd like i'd like them to play like the the most iconic like anthem set and it, it, that's it pretty much does most of the time anyway but you know like i've noticed online that he's recently doing some stuff where he's playing the other, like, digging out his old mixes and stuff. The Kevin and some and of those, Perry, like amnesia type thing. That we're yeah, do. that kind of thing. So it's almost like, um, 
yeah, I'd like to I'd like to try and pick the best artists from those sort of eras that did it best themselves. You know, like Tony DeVito for the hard hard stuff, Jules, and then I guess they're all really really heavy. But then again, I'd like sort of um, I don't know. I'm, I'd, it, again, I love all music, so I'd have to pick someone like. Um, Probably like well, it'd have to be Chemical Brothers to be honest. So yeah, Chemical Brothers because that you know you'd never ask your money back if you went to see them, would you? So yeah, that's what, man, that sounds like sounds like rock. a good gig. <laughs> sounds like a well, wicked gig. Yeah, it sounds a bit bit mixed. Up. It sounds like mince and fish together, doesn't it? No, no, I think that's me. I think that's a wicked answer. Right, okay. In the last, so last all, I'm going to ask you to pick a track to play out this podcast. It can be. Um, something new, it can be something old, it can be something of yours, it can be someone else's. It's just really, I guess, to encapsulate if someone's been listening to you and I have this chat, you know, on their, as this podcast at this moment in time. This moment in time is obviously whenever they're listening to it, but someone's had to listen to this chat. They've come to the end of it. They've heard all about your story. They've heard all about everything else. And I just want you to sort of name a track. I'll put it in in post and just explain a little bit of why you think they should listen to this track right now at the end of this podcast. Right. Um, yeah, I think it should be my uh, next Dirty Bird release because when I made it, I went to my friends in Seattle. It's called Alex Bakersaurus. Um, and it's, I went to his and I stayed with him uh, while I was playing a gig out there. And we started a track and we were like, why don't we make like a track with like, we'll, we'll like get your MPC and that, dust it off. And we'll get like old school uh, SP1200 hip hop samples and we'll just like, we'll make something cut up and different that's different to like other stuff. And it was like, yeah, let's let's just have a jam. So we just started this track and we were like, you know, it's all right. We just did a, a V1 of it. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah. And that comes out on the 7th of August on Dirty Bird. It's called Raw. Um, I think I, I, I'd like to uh, end with that one because, it, again, it, it's got a bit of a story. You know, I started it before the lockdown. And then after, what happened was, um, like, um, Claude Von Stroke played it on his live stream and it was V1. So it was the first version that he got that my management sent him. But I'd got to like version eight and I'd saved over it. I'd absolutely changed the whole thing. Like I changed it all because I was like, I'd heard to too much of it. I changed it all. And I didn't say, I didn't go back to the original. I'd just saved over it. There was no chance I, we could have gone back. So I spent three days reverting back, trying to copy what I'd done. But his comments were, it, it's good, but it doesn't sound finished. So, and then I had to make it better. It took me three days to mix it, master it, and mix it down and re, re get the vibe I had at the beginning, which is really difficult because we were just slamming away on MPC and cutting up. So, yeah, we I did it. Uh, like, we did it together on Zoom and everything. And, yeah, so you'll probably be able to hear it in the production that it, it took a little time. <laughs> nice one, Mama. Well, I'll play that on. Um, thank you so much for having a chat. I've really, really enjoyed it. Next time I'm uh, down with Colin next door, I'll come and say hello. Yeah. Uh, all yeah, the best for uh, lockdown. I hope it keeps you in the sleeping habit and uh, everything else nice and healthy. And I'm sure I'll run into you soon, man. So thank you so yeah. much for the chat. Yeah, nice one. Cheers, buddy. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are.
Try to press play.